You're listening to The Real Health Podcast by Ebony May. People think that they're the only ones that suffer from these conditions, but there is heaps of people out there that will have the same symptoms of you. It takes people such a long time to come and see us, but it is worth it. So if you have any of these symptoms, go and see someone about it because there is help. Hello, welcome back to the Real Health Podcast. As always, I am your host, Ebony May, and I'm really excited for you guys to get this episode into your ears. As you probably know by now, I'm very passionate about all things women health, and today's guest definitely shares my passion. Rachel Fit is a Melbourne-based pelvic floor and continence physiotherapist. Rachel is super passionate about empowering women throughout their lifespan and preventing women's health issues that hinder both physical and well-being goals. In this episode, Rachel speaks about the importance of pelvic floor, common misconceptions among her clients, and why she decided to pursue the realm of women's health and pre and postnatal. I absolutely loved talking to Rachel and getting to nerd out a little bit when she talked about all of the women's health stuff. So I think you're going to love this episode as well. Let's dive right in. Here is Rachel Fit. Rachel, welcome to the Real Health Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Ebony. It's great to be here. And it's actually nice to be talking to someone else, especially considering the current climate we find ourselves in here in Victoria. (laughs) I know. I'm staying with my boyfriend at the moment. And needless to say, conversations with him are are happening very, very frequently. So it is nice to shake it up a little bit. (laughs) I know. And I feel like, I don't know, pre-COVID, maybe like doing stuff like this over Zoom and other kind of platforms would have been weird, but now it feels totally normal. So it's um, funny how everything changes. Exactly. It is the norm. I mean, I love that you're in Victoria too. Maybe we'll have to do one in person one day, but for now, this is what we've got. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) this is the best we can do. (laughs) Okay. So the first question I ask every guest is always the same, which is what does real health mean to you? I think this is like such a tough question. I was thinking about it um, over the last like kind of few months, I suppose, given that we are in lockdown, I think people have kind of drawn attention like onto health a lot more. And I think that this is something that actually changes for me almost day to day, week to week. Like if I look back at what real health meant to me when I was in high school, I probably would have said like to be skinny and to like look like you were really fit and to be able to like run a really good time at the ass carnival. Um, But now it's so different. Now I think I'm a lot more holistic and I um, you know, put a lot of focus onto, you know, how happy am I? Like, have I had enough sleep? Um, you know, how do I feel about my body? Do I actually need to go and do exercise today or do I need to have a rest day? Am I eating like a balanced, you know, diet? Do I have work-life balance? So I think for me, it like encompasses so many. And sometimes, you know, I feel like my health isn't very good because I lack those balance balancing things, I guess. Um, Especially I found over the last few months, my work-life balance has been very hard to manage. And I think when we are in lockdown and we have all of this time, you just want to kind of throw yourself into things like work. I don't know if you found that, but I have to almost like literally try and like set a time, like I cannot do work after this time today because I need to have a break. But then your break is like, you know, staying at home. Like you have nothing to like kind of set the boundaries, I guess. 
I think it's hard though because we don't have that much to do and that's not an exaggeration. In Melbourne, we can literally go outside one hour a day. So to me, I'm either working and feeling good about it or I'm watching Netflix and feeling crap about it. I know that there's a balance, but if I just zoned out and watched Netflix all day, I would feel crappy, you know? Oh, 100%. I feel the exact same. And when this all first started, I loved like sitting down on the couch and having a couple of hours of, you know, binge watching Grey's Anatomy or whatever it was on TV. But now like that's the last thing I actually want to do. Like I just can't watch TV anymore because yeah, I think people don't realize like how long we have been in this situation for. And I think that you almost feel like we're getting locked down fatigue. I think a lot of people have mentioned that recently and I feel like that's definitely a thing and I have to, you know, start trying to like, you know, physically be like, I need to read a book at this time because I need to switch off from everything. Um, So I think for me, real health at the moment is really just about trying to find that balance and try and stay as positive as I can and do things that make me feel good. Um, Given that, you know, the news isn't very good for us down here in terms of lockdown and our roadmap out of this. Yeah, I really like that because I think your definition of real health isn't necessarily black or white and it can change day to day based on what your your body actually needs at the time, which I think is really amazing. I think that if we all strive to just do what our body wants at that time, whether it is to get stuck into work or is to watch a Netflix show, because at the start of isolation, I was the same and I started watching Vampire Diaries and did not stop. So it's just that I'm sick of that aspect. So we all go through different stages, but I like that your idea of real health is is ever-changing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that working in the health profession myself is that you hear lots of different people's opinions on what health is. And yeah, you do realize that there is no kind of normal definition and everyone interprets health differently and has different expectations of what health means to them. So yeah, I think it's really cool that um, we can make it individual to ourselves. Yeah, oh, 100%. And I think it frees people of that, that expectation to match this one ideal of health, which is why I started the podcast in the first place. If we, if we start realizing that people we admire or people who are influential in a certain area or experts in a certain area have all differing ideas of what real health means to them, I guess it empowers and encourages other women to find out what it means for them individually. Yes, absolutely. It's great. <laughs> okay, so my next segment is the real recap. So how mm-hmm. has your last seven days been? Yeah, so the last seven days has been really busy. So I'm extremely grateful um, due to the field that I work in that I have been really busy. So for those that don't know, I'm a pelvic floor and continence physiotherapist in Melbourne. So I work extensively with pre and postnatal women and also extensively with anyone that has pelvic pain. So during this time, we have, you know, pregnancy and postnatal times don't stop. So those patients um, still need to be seen. And I think for people that have chronic pelvic pain, their pain is almost flared during this time. And it's really sad that a lot of the hospital or like the public system, I should say, are no longer seeing face-to-face patients. So um, all of these people are trying to seek private health. And so it's great that we can help them. But um, I also feel really bad for a lot of people. But yeah, so really grateful that I have been full-time work still. So last Thursday, I worked at a private clinic, which is out in Croydon, which is eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and that's a pelvic floor clinic. So I do a half day there. Fridays, I work publicly and I have just started or rotated to the maternity ward um, and the acute services out in the eastern suburbs as well. So that's super exciting, getting to see new mums and their little babies. Um, The weekend, I also worked. (laughs) I feel like work is my life right now. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but we were treated to like an amazing day on Sunday. It was like 22 degrees. So I just tried to stay outside as long as I can. I set myself up in the sun, read a book. And then this week has been really busy work-wise and I've got a massive amount of GP letters that I need to write. So I've been getting up at six o'clock every morning to try and do them. <laughs> so that's my week really. Wow, you're, it sounds like you're a little bit snowed under, but I mean, you may as well be because there's not much else you can be doing right now, to be no, honest, in Melbourne. A hundred percent. With um, my public job, I worked from home a couple of days and I went nuts. Like I like hats off to anyone that's working full time at home. I do not know how they do it. So I am very lucky that I have it to keep me busy. <laughs> the next question I ask instead of saying what do you do or anything like that I like to ask what how would you best describe your stage of life right now because I think people are so much more than what they do and although I know you're so passionate about what you do so it is very inbuilt I would say like in your personality but how would you describe your stage of life right now? Yeah, it's a great question because I think that I'm in my kind of like mid to late 20s. I'm turning 27. So I feel like it is that stage of life that is very heavily career focused. Um, So it is hard to sometimes have that separation. So I think that, I mean, last year, it was my work year. I started working for myself and I kind of threw everything into it. And this was meant to be my year where I started getting my social life back and look how it's turned out. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, But I think that I'm definitely in that stage of life where I want to kind of, you know, build my career. I want to set myself up to hopefully over the next couple of years start thinking about having a family. So I think that in that mid to late 20s, that's probably what a lot of my friends are doing as well, actually. So it is, it's an interesting time how your everyone's kind of life stage shifts a little bit and you do start thinking more about the future and how you can kind of prepare yourself for that. Um, so that's where I'm at. And I also uh, just moved out of home this year as well with my boyfriend. So that's been really fun. Um, so that's kind of the stage we're at at the moment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to just, for people who don't know you or don't follow you, give a little bit of a brief introduction about who you are and the work that you do. Yeah, sure. So my name is Rachel. I'm a pelvic floor incontinence physiotherapist in Melbourne. So um, I treat a lot of different conditions. I have people that ask me questions about the area of physio I'm in all the time. And it's hard to describe it because we do see such a range of people. Um, So I work definitely pregnancy, postnatal. We see young teenagers that have urinary incontinence or bladder leakage when they do exercise. We see people that have sexual pain vaginismus, endometriosis, um, any other kind of pelvic pain in that area that doesn't necessarily have a diagnosis. We see women that have prolapses after birth, which is where um, your organs can kind of slip into the middle in that vaginal region. We see people postmenopausal. We see people that suffer from constipation. Um, So that kind of sums up my work in like a bit of a nutshell. I feel like the area that I work in we're not just a physio. We Most of our patients have very complex medical history going on or they have mental health concerns. So we often end up being like a bit of a psychologist. We're a little bit like a doctor. Uh, we work very, very closely with the multidisciplinary team, which is amazing because we get to learn off so many different people. Um, but that kind of sums it up. And then in the field that I work in, it is still quite small. And I think actually that maybe some of our followers won't even know, or some of your followers, sorry, or your followers of the podcast may not even know that my job exists because I think when people have these conditions, they go straight to the GP and then they might be referred to a gynecologist or sometimes they're 
their concerns aren't even heard and they're like, oh, that's normal. So, you know, sexual pain is not normal. Urinary incontinence isn't normal. Um, having really painful periods where you feel like you need to miss exercise, miss work, miss school, that's not normal. So um, I think that we're trying to break a lot of those taboos about talking about this kind of stuff in public to try and get people to talk about it more so people that do suffer from those conditions are aware that there is help out there and that's exactly what pelvic floor physios treat. Um, So, yeah, it's very kind of holistic, the stuff that we do, and it's a whole body approach. It's um, We work closely with the naturopaths and sexologists. Like there's so many people, I suppose, that I work with. Um, So it's hard to, I don't know if I could even say anything more. I could go on forever about this. (laughs) No, I, I, I love that. And I love that especially a big part of your job is trying to, well, you're working with a lot of topics that are unfortunately taboo. So I love your Instagram and I love your presence on social media because these things, people shouldn't be embarrassed and these things need to be spoken about so people don't feel alone when they experience them. Yes, 100%. And I think that, you know, people that do have their sexual pain, they go and talk to one person, they get one opinion that may be like, this is normal. And then they feel like they kind of go into this like hole in a way and never talk about it ever again. And they deal with it for however many years or until they're trying to have kids. And then they they finally find out that there's all these other people out there that can help. And it, it's actually like heartbreaking to hear some people's stories. And yeah, I hope that if one person listening, this helps them really realize that there's you know help out there for one of these conditions if say they have it I hope that they feel like they have the confidence to go out and seek that help or if you ever go and see a medical professional no matter what area of health it's in if you're not happy with the answer like go and get a second opinion because one person's opinion isn't necessarily the right way and not everyone specializes in women's health so if you're not seeing patients that have those symptoms all the time then potentially the health professional might not even know that there is help in that area so I think it's really hard and as like a patient or someone that could be suffering from those symptoms you don't know like you're relying on your doctor or you know your friends or people around you to tell you this information but if no one else has those symptoms or the doctor's never seen someone with those symptoms then unfortunately people miss out on correct information which is really sad Mm, completely and I think like you said Mm. a, a lot of people who are listening probably don't know some of the things that you've talked about and some of them are quite obscure how did you end up specializing in women's health and dealing with those those things like postnatal clients yeah absolutely so I actually never knew this existed prior to studying physio so I was I grew up wanting to be a sports physio and I think that's like 90% of people that go into physio want to specialize in sport (laughs) and um, I was very fortunate to have a friend at uni who had worked as a receptionist in a women's health clinic and she was so passionate about it and she really opened my eyes up into that world and then in my degree when we covered men's and women's health we um, spoke a lot about these conditions and I was fortunate to do a placement at a private hospital that had um, pelvic floor physios working there so I was I suppose exposed to it a lot more than maybe other physio students are and I loved it but I still kind of pursued that sports career Um, I started working in a sports private practice in Melbourne 
And I really enjoyed it, but I had been working as a sports trainer for probably five years, maybe even six years prior to that as well. And it was a lot of nights. It was a lot of weekends. It's a lot of the same type of injuries. Like, yes, you treat everyone slightly different because it needs to be individualized. But at the end of the day, every kind of, you know, rolled ankle or ankle sprain requires a similar type of treatment and rehab program. Um, It might vary differently, but it was very kind of repetitive and I just didn't love it as much as I thought I would. So then I just like dived straight into some women's health courses and they had an introductory course um, that some some of my other friends actually wanted to do it as well that I studied with. So we all went up to Brisbane, did the course together. And then I just started seeing a lot of pregnancy and postnatal patients. And then I moved full-time into women's health at another clinic that specialized very heavily on pregnancy and postnatal. And then I decided to go and do further study and get a postgrad certificate in the area And that's when I started working for myself. So I think what led me into the area was that every patient is so different. They might be diagnosed with the same condition as your patient that you saw before them, but it affects them differently. They might have different symptoms. It bothers them in different ways. They've had a different journey to get to you. Um, So no patient is the same. And it's very empowering being able to, I suppose, talk to women about things that might be really embarrassing for them to come in and talk to you about, but then to have them leave feeling so much better and knowing they're not alone and there's a, you know, a treatment plan in place and that we are going to hopefully significantly improve or cure their symptoms is such an amazing feeling. So I have loved it. I never thought I'd end up in this area, but I feel like it was just for me. I think that's so often the way we start to get into something and then it's just you would never have imagined you know looking back when you started this is where you would be but you find that perfect fit I think for me personally I, I've wanted to study law <laughs> and now I'm a nutritionist yeah. personal trainer so it's just so funny different. exactly it's so funny how life has a way of doing that um you've mentioned pelvic floor quite a bit something that I and I love talking about and I love like I guess trying to make it less taboo. Can you give us a bit of a crash course on pelvic floor and should it just be older women thinking about it or pregnant women thinking about it? Like tell us all about it. Yeah, absolutely. So pelvic floor, I think people think it's just like one muscle or, you know, it's just one tiny little part. But uh, when we talk about the pelvic floor, so it is made up of a lot of muscles. It's made up of connective tissue. There's nerves there. There's blood vessels there. But if you think about the pelvis, so the bony structure, it's very hollow in the middle. So the pelvic floor is literally like the floor of your pelvis. So it's what is the base or the foundation of the pelvis to support all the other organs that are in that region. So for women, it's supporting your bladder, it's supporting your uterus and your rectum. So when we talk about the pelvic floor muscles, there are nine muscles there. Most of them are skeletal muscles. So the exact same as like your bicep, your hamstring. So like all of your other muscles in the body, they can become very tight, they can become weak, they can have injury, and they can also cause a lot of pain. So um, more specifically, though, we have circular muscles that surround the urethra, the urethra and the vaginal region, and also the back passage. So when we need to go to the toilet to empty the bladder, or we're trying to stop wind, these muscles are contracting to make sure that we can hold on till we make it to the toilet, or hold on till appropriate time to pass wind. And then they need to relax to allow you to fully empty the bladder and fully empty the bowel. Then 
then there's um, around the urethra and the vagina, there's another group of muscles that are really important for sexual function and orgasm. And then there's a deeper layer of pelvic floor, which is like a sling or a hammock between your legs that runs from your pubic bone to your tailbone. And that's the muscle that lifts up and supports the bladder, the uterus and the rectum. So that's kind of the best crash course I can probably give you over um, a podcast platform. Um, but there's heaps and heaps of information out there on the internet, on Instagram, if you do actually want to see like a pelvis model and see what the pelvic floor structures are um, in like image perspective, I suppose. Um, in terms of looking at pelvic floor outside of pregnancy and postnatal or in terms of when you get older, I think people think pelvic floor is like an old person's thing, but it's so wrong. Um, pelvic floor muscles need to be trained like other muscles and you can have dysfunction in your muscles just like any other muscle in the body. So if your muscles are too tight, they're not going to do what they should do, right? So if you're struggling to empty your bladder, you've got constipation because your muscles are too tight and you can't relax properly, or if you're having intercourse and there's pain, um, the pelvic floor can play a big role in that. And that's usually what targets young people. So young people that do high intensity exercise, have stressful jobs, have anxiety, carry so much tension in the pelvic floor and often will have a dysfunction there. Whether the symptoms are bothersome or not, that's another story. And that's probably maybe one reason why people don't think about pelvic floor until they are pregnant or postnatal is because that they might have symptoms, but they've never been bothersome to them. Um, we do see a lot of young girls though that have, like I said earlier, they have stress urinary incontinence, which is leakage when doing activities. So such as sport, coughing, sneezing, laughing, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the population we see, especially teenagers, early twenties, we see lots of that. And then the sexual pain side of things as well, pain using tampons, internal examinations. Um, it's important that if you have these symptoms to get on top of it, because the longer your muscles have dysfunction the harder it is to retrain right it's like having a really bad posture and then one day being like I want to fix this like you would know Ebony as like a PT like how hard is it to change someone's muscular function or biomechanics like it takes ages um mm -hmm. So I think it is important to think about these things younger. It's easy to train a muscle or not easy, but easier to train a muscle that doesn't have injury. So um, prior to falling pregnant or giving birth, if you can retrain your muscles to ensure there's no dysfunction, that's going to be much easier for you compared to retraining the muscles after birth if there is dysfunction or injury that has occurred from the birth itself. Um, so I screen in my clinic every single pregnant patient that walks through the doors and see obstetricians in our um, clinic because I think it is so important for people to understand pelvic floor function and know how to use their pelvic floor prior to giving birth but we're starting to see a lot more um, probably more people that actually work in the health field and know a little bit more about pelvic floor come in for a pelvic floor screening prior to falling pregnant as well. So if you had any concerns that you thought might be to do with your pelvic floor, there is no harm in coming and seeing a pelvic floor physio for a checkup on bladder and bowel health, sexual health, and also pelvic floor function. So I think that that's something that's really important to, um, I suppose, get out there is that you can come and see us just for a checkup, like you would go and see your gynae for a checkup or your GP for a checkup. It's um, better that we, I suppose, know more about pelvic floor at a young age because 
at the moment, I'm seeing a lot of patients that are menopausal or postmenopausal and pelvic floor, unfortunately, wasn't spoken about enough back when they had kids or when they were in their early 20s or teenage years. And they've had symptoms for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years and nothing's been done about it. And it makes treatment much harder than um, they have more risk factors. There's more things that we need to retrain and address. So um, yeah, I hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think I think you just reiterated the importance that everyone needs to be thinking about it at least and we can be proactive about it. It doesn't have to necessarily be once you get pregnant and there are the symptoms or like you said, you wait for them to get to a debilitating state. Um, so I think it's really important to consider. But I will also shout out your Instagram because you have so many great posts. I'm going to link that below. Um, so if, you, if you've listened to that and you're like, I still don't really understand or I, I I haven't even heard about public floor before. Check out Rachel's Instagram because it is a great, great source. Yes, absolutely. One more thing actually that I should mention because I feel like another really common symptom of teenagers and people in their 20s is recurrent urinary tract infections. So recurrent urinary tract infections are sometimes not because there's um, you know a dysfunction in the bladder. It could be purely pelvic floor. So that's just something else to keep in mind as well actually. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So what do you think the biggest misconception is that you find amongst your clients? Uh, Probably new mums saying that leaking or bladder leakage is a normal part of motherhood. So I know that if I had kids and had bladder leakage, that there is no way that I could deal with that. That would be horrifying for me. But people just seem to be like, oh, I've got kids. I have bladder leakage. Like that's normal. Um, That is not normal. It's common, but not normal. So I think that if people actually realized that that wasn't normal and that there was help, that more people would do something about it. But it always surprises me when people come in and they're like oh I've got a little bit of leakage but that's not why I'm here and they're there for something else and it just shows I suppose how much like variance there is in terms of the same symptom bothering people to different extents um so that's probably Mm -hmm. one of the biggest misconceptions that I hear in my clinic um People kind of also say the same thing about sex being painful after childbirth as well and they don't realise that that's something that actually should get better and that it shouldn't persist. So it's um, very, very interesting to hear different people's opinions, I suppose, when they don't necessarily know much about the pelvic floor and what we can treat. Mm, exactly I think it's that same sort of thing that I deal with in in my space as well is that people think that something's normal when it may be common but it's not normal like they're separate yeah yes absolutely and in your space I mean like you would have I suppose if you treat um have older ladies coming to your PT sessions like they'll be like sorry I can't do those star jumps but they've never like you know they don't maybe disclose to you why they can't do it they'll just be like oh they'll have a pad on but just do it anyway and it's um I think that they just put up with it, but it's not something that they need to put up with. So um, it's great that we are speaking about it more. Mm, exactly. When we're talking about postnatal, what are some things to keep in mind when returning to exercise? I know that there's this magic number out there, six weeks, where I think a lot of people think after six weeks you can go and do an F45 class. Can you talk a little bit about returning to exercise? Yeah, of course. So um, it's funny you say that because I was actually having a conversation with um, someone that I work with this morning about six weeks being this like magic number when one day it's not okay to exercise and the next day it is and like how that is (laughs) even out there. So um, yeah, returning to exercise postnatal is a really hard one because people do have the expectation that they hit that six week mark and they're going to be able to go back into whatever they were doing before. But that is so wrong on so many levels. And it's um, 
it makes me like kind of angry to, that that's what's out there and that's what people know. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing is with that is that a lot of people follow, if, especially if they're birthed in the public system, they go and see their GP at six weeks and they may not even have an internal vaginal examination to check on what their organs are doing, check on pelvic floor. It'll be like, how's everything been healing? Yep, great tick, like, you know you feeling well tick like yep return to exercise like that's literally what happens in some postnatal checks and so I think that's why people have that kind of mindset that they can just return to exercise the next day um in terms of the process of returning to exercise we actually don't have a lot of research in this field so pelvic floor and exercise is still very much up to debate we have more and more kind of recommendations coming out but we do need so much more exercise or research about exercise and pelvic floor sorry um so I suppose in pregnancy, exercise needs to be modified to protect pelvic floor, to protect your ligaments, to protect your connective tissues. So a lot of the time people will be exercising at a decreased level to what they were beforehand if they were very, very active beforehand. Um, Some people actually increase exercise in pregnancy, which that's great. Um, Once you have bub though, you always have a period of time where you might not have exercised for say maybe a week over the time that you've had that birth and then you haven't exercised for the following four or five weeks till that six-week checkup and then you're like yep I can go back and do um, what I was doing before after having this break so you would know Ebony like any kind of training whenever we're doing exercise you have to have like a gradually loaded program to prevent any injury so um to avoid even just like a hamstring strain a rolled ankle you have to gradually progress your exercise dosage I suppose so going from zero to a hundred is just like screaming risk factors for all sorts of injuries but then when we talk about the pelvic floor specifically like your pelvic floor is going to have dysfunction after birth whether it's a c-section or a vaginal delivery so it's just inevitable the last five or six weeks of pregnancy your pelvic floor is under constant stretch your core muscles are under constant stretch 100% of women are going to have some kind of abdominal separation because of the way the muscles need to stretch to accommodate bub growing in the uterus so there's all these kind of things going on in pregnancy that people don't necessarily realize is happening and then once bub is out those are the most vulnerable parts of the body. So if you're going from zero to 100 in terms of changing your exercise dosage in a very quick amount of time, your poor pelvic floor is just not going to be able to cope with it. And whether people have symptoms or not is another thing. You can have pelvic floor issues going on like a prolapse and not even know about it at the time. And it's not until later on that people will get these symptoms. So I think that that's probably the hardest thing. And when people have probably more so a vaginal delivery because they tend to recover a little bit quicker where a Caesar is major abdominal surgery. So people that have a vaginal delivery without complication, they're going to feel pretty good pretty quickly, especially if they've exercised throughout their pregnancy. So a lot of the time we really need to pull them back because they just want to jump straight back into things. Um, when their body is not actually ready to. So I work very closely with a lot of my postnatal patients and 
really have to kind of pull them back and guide them back into exercise so they don't actually have any of those risk factors of creating more injury. Um, So that's exactly why I released that 12-week postnatal exercise guide for new mums to be able to start week one after their baby and retrain their deep postural system, their core, their balance, their pelvic floor and general strength so that they can then safely return to high impact exercise. Um, So it gets very complicated, I think, but probably the easiest way to think about it is if you tore your hamstring yesterday, you would have to be, you could be on crutches as a worst case scenario. You would have to be icing it. You would have to be resting it. You'd probably have a compression bandage on it. You would need to be doing some kind of rehab to get you back just to walking normally. And that would probably take you four to six weeks, maybe even longer, depending on how bad you strained it. And then we think about childbirth and the muscles stretch. If you have a vaginal delivery over 300%, like that is way more than your hamstring can stretch. Yet we don't think about it the same way. And new Mm mums may not be eating the best. They're definitely a lot of the time not sleeping very well. And those things are key for our body to recover and heal. So if you're not doing, you know, the best, I suppose, textbook stuff for recovery, then you can't return to exercise quickly. And things like F45, running, um, any kind of jumping, the research that we have and the best recommendations that we have say that that shouldn't be done before 12 weeks postnatal. So I think that that's a big misconception in the community that they can return to high impact exercise at an earlier phase when in fact it should be the earliest 12 weeks with a really good rehab program so um but that's not spoken about like I was actually listening to your podcast Ebony with Ali Lemons the other week and she spoke exactly Mm. about this how she tried to I think it was she tried to go for a run after six weeks and just realized her body couldn't do it and that's because so much changes in pregnancy and birth in our bodies, like it's amazing what they can do, but it does take a massive toll on your strength, on your fitness, you're tired, you lack energy, that how can we expect our bodies to go out there and be able to perform doing, you know, exercise at a high intensity? Mm, Exactly. And I think it just annoys me that we even have a number on it, like that it's not, it should be individualized to each woman. I think when you have a number like six weeks, it creates that expectation for women to think, okay, I should be doing this at this time. I should be doing that. Instead of thinking, am I am I okay to do it? Did I get clearance? Did I get proper clearance? Did I get an internal examination? I think there's just so much more to think about. But before I did my, um for PT, my pre and postnatal certificate, and even before that, I just, when, when people asked about it, I knew that there was that six-week number um, that everyone knows about. It, and I just think we should, get rid of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it should be like, mums should be able to return to exercise whenever they feel ready. Right. Like how many mums actually are ready to return to exercise at six weeks? Like probably not much. Like it's an unrealistic expectation for so many. And then we didn't even talk about the fact that breastfeeding can like implicate all of this as well. But, um, there is so much to it that makes it so much more complicated that people realize. And I actually saw someone post, um, a photo the other day and it was like a new new mom with a baby but the caption was like this photo looks like I would be really happy but you know realistically there was postnatal depression there were all these other things psychologically going on because it's a massive life shift and we I don't think we recognize that enough Mm. I think that sometimes 
the way that it's glamorized, maybe maybe through influences and social media, or even back in the day, magazines, people saying, look how fast she lost her baby weight. It's almost as if we're making the main event, how people bounce back. And I think that it's really gross to not like focus on the fact that this woman is literally just given birth one of life's freaking miracles like let's concentrate on that instead of how she can get how she can become like not like that anymore I don't know it blows my mind yes I 100% agree and from seeing new mums on the ward everyone literally bounces back so differently some people will look like two days later like they haven't even had a baby and that's just good genetics other people will almost look like they're still pregnant weeks later so everyone's body is going to recover at a different rate and there's no timeline for any of this I think when we talk about pregnancy we talk about the nine months but we forget about that fourth trimester which is that three months after you give birth like that's what the fourth trimester is and we need to talk about childbirth it's like a whole year process even more and I think it's great that they're that Instagram has given so many people a platform to be like, hey, it actually took me like one year to return to normal exercise. And I think that that's good because the expectation that that I suppose, like you said, the influencers maybe are portraying is so wrong and it's unachievable for so many people. And I think that we need to, we need to give new mums some slack. Mm, 100%. And I think that also as a society, we need to stop commenting on probably women's bodies in general, but especially people who have just had a baby. And I saw in a Facebook group recently, someone had a baby three months ago and then somebody asked them when they were due. <laughs> and oh, no. it just, I know. And it's just horrible. I think why are we, why are we tell, even, even if it is a positive that you think it is saying, oh wow, like you've lost your baby weight really fast. Like that then creates an expectation to keep going or something like that. So I think it's really important to not comment on women's bodies, like I said, in general, in appearances, but especially for people who are pregnant or postnatal as well. Absolutely. I actually, um, one of the obstetricians that I know posted this, like it was like a meme, I suppose you could call it, but it was about this like pregnant lady that was like a stick figure. And it was like, when should you ask if someone's pregnant? And it was like all the way through the pregnancy, it was like, no, 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 no. And then it was like, in the operating theater when they're taking the baby out like via a c-section and it's like maybe then but it was like that's that's actually so true though like we shouldn't be assuming we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions and asking people these things because we don't know what's going on in the background pregnancy can be so complicated and you don't know what that person's dealing with I suppose behind closed doors so it is oft it's one of those things that you you want to kind of ask but you do have to kind of pull yourself back and wait for the person to tell you rather than be like hey are you pregnant how many weeks are you or are you postnatal whatever it is mm, exactly I think I saw that same meme except it was like a little arm dangling out and then it said Maybe <laughs> it was great. so good <laughs> I want to try and find it and I'll put it on the podcast Instagram yes please do <laughs> I would love to know you're obviously so passionate about what you do what do you think is the biggest message that you strive and aim to convey through your social platforms Yeah, I think that probably when I started my Instagram, it was more just to get education out there. And I've actually been blown away at how much people appreciate it because I think on the internet, there's there's so much stuff, right? And a lot of it is people's personal experience or it's blogs or it's stuff from overseas that is different to how we treat things here. Um, So the message that I strive to convey on there is probably just there is help available for all of these things. Do not be embarrassed to go to your GP and speak about personal concerns within that pelvic region. So um, people think that they're the only ones that suffer from these conditions, but there is 
heaps of people out there that will have the same symptoms of you. And it takes people such a long time to come and see us, but it is worth it. So if you have any of these symptoms, go and see someone about it because there is help. And I think the other thing is probably the sexual pain because people will go to their GP and they'll be like, oh, that's normal to have pain with intercourse or that's normal this or that's normal for that. Or they'll get sent off for investigations. All the investigations will come back with no kind of like pathology in the region. And ladies get kind of put in this basket where it's like in their head and it's not in your head at all. Like if you don't know how to use your pelvic floor or there's underlying reasons why the muscles are becoming so tight in that area, then it needs to be treated. It's not in your head. We just need to break those pain patterns that are going on and we need to um, address like a holistic approach, I suppose, to address the symptoms. So I think that that's probably a big one and it's really sad that there's still a lot of stories like that of people that have gone from doctor to doctor and been told it's in their head and then they feel like they just go back into their shell and don't want to see anyone else. And that's probably actually one of the biggest things that I hope that I can convey on my Instagram platform to the world about, yeah, that it's not in your head, I guess. Mm, Yeah, it's so important. Okay, my last question before the last segment, which is real quick cues, is if you could make one taboo or underrated topic more spoken about or more accepted, what do you think it would be? Um, Probably period pain isn't normal. So if you suffer from period pain um, and you miss exercise, work, school, whatever it is, that's not normal. And I would fight to get that investigated way, way earlier than it actually is at the moment. Endometriosis affects one in 10 women. We don't have a lot of research about it. And teenage girls are put on the pill at such young ages to mask symptoms. So I think endometriosis, there's a lot of hype about it at the moment. And I think that that's one of probably the biggest taboo things we need to get onto that much earlier and help these poor girls sort out their pelvic pain issues at a much kind of junior junior can't even talk properly junior age <laughs> than we currently are yeah 100 percent. I could not agree with that more it breaks my heart when people say that they're on the pill just to get rid of pain I think to me that makes me really sad I think that everyone should be empowered to choose the pill if they want to choose the pill but I think when you're choosing it as the only um, option that isn't pain it's really upsetting oh absolutely and I think that like when you're in pain, you're so desperate to just have something to help it, I guess. So that's probably why a lot of people go on the pill. But also when you're a teenager and your mom takes you to the doctor, like you don't know any different really. Like Mm -hmm. I know that if I was a teenager and they told me to go on the pill, I would have just done it, right? Like because I wouldn't have been, I don't think I was mature enough to actually like investigate it further. And that's what happens to young girls is they get put on the pill and then in their 20s, they start to develop these symptoms or they come off the pill because they want to try for kids. And all of a sudden, all of these issues come out. And I think it's that we need to actually target young girls. And um, my partner's a teacher and he teaches health and they were doing um, like sexual reproduction stuff in class the other week. And I was like, I wish I could go in there and just give them a lecture about what is normal in terms of periods and things like that because I think that we don't cover it in school enough oh 100% that is something I'm so even female hormones and things like that I remember sex ed in grade six and just we learned absolutely nothing apart from the fact that we all thought that the first time we held hands with a boy we'd get pregnant um so (laughs) yes (laughs) 
<laughs> we had this um, thing in primary school. One of my um, good friends, she got a boyfriend in grade six and we were like, you're going to get your period mm. now. Like <laughs> so wrong. I'm like, what? Like, where did we even get this kind of information from? <laughs> Oh, I know. And I thought literally until I was, I think I was 15, that to get pregnant, you had to have sex while you were on your period. Yeah. Like, and I, and the t- I just, I just thought that, do you know what I mean? Because I thought I knew that you couldn't like get pregnant until you had a period. But, I, and that's, and to me, it's just, there's so much of that misconception out there. We should be learning about this. Like this is our, our own bodies. So I love the work that you're doing and I love that it's moving society a step closer to knowing more about ourselves, because I think that's the most empowering thing that we can possibly do is actually know what our bodies are doing. Yes, 100%. And I'm so glad that we got to chat about this today. Um, I'm so passionate about that. And if anyone has any questions, like, please feel free to message me because I'd be happy to talk about this more. Um, So yeah, it's been really nice. And I, I'm going to link everything below. So if you do want to contact Rachel, you'll be able to just click down to the show notes. But we do have our last segment, which is real quick cues. So I've okay. got three questions for you that are totally unrelated. And yeah. just the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, perfect. Okay, so we've got sunrise or sunset. Ooh, that's a tough one. I'll go sunset. Sunset. Uh, tropical <laughs> flavor. <laughs> tropical flavor or berry flavor. Berry. And three, X-ray vision or super strength. Oh, X-ray vision. Is that because of your profession? I feel like that would make things so much easier. Yeah, yeah. It would be so good to just be like, yeah, that's what's going on. (laughs) So good. Rachel, I've so loved chatting with you. And like I said, everything's going to be linked below, but I can't wait to keep consuming your content because it is amazing. Thank you so much, Ebony. And thank you so much for having me. It's great what you're getting out there. I love your podcast. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And that concludes my interview today with Rachel Fit. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, you can find more about the Real Health Podcast on our Instagram, which is at Real Health Podcast. And if you'd like to see or hear more from me, you can follow my Instagram at Ebony May Health. It means the world that you guys are listening and enjoying the episodes. I would love if you could share them on your story or even just word of mouth telling your friend if you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, I wish you happiness and real health.